0: The last class of my old professor's life took place once a week in his house by a window in the study where he could watch a small hibiscus plant shed its pink leaves. The class met on Tuesdays. It began after breakfast. The subject was the meaning of life. It was taught from experience. No books were required, yet many topics were covered, including love, work, community, family, aging, forgiveness, and finally, death. The last lecture was brief, only a few words. A funeral was held in lieu of graduation. The last class of my old professor's life had only one student. I was the student. However that fear comes, in whatever form it takes, the only way that I know is to look it in the face and be aware of the fact that you have it and then say, what can I do about it? Do I want to continue to
1: tremble and submit? Or do I want to try to handle it? And sure, I've had plenty of fears. Uh, You know, I might not be able to get the treatment I need or want, or whatever it is. I look at it, okay, I'm afraid. Now what?
0: I try to detach myself. I say, okay, I'm afraid, but it's not me. That was the voice of Maury Schwartz, the Maury of Tuesdays with Maury, and I am Mitch Album, the author of the book Tuesdays with Maury, and you're listening to the Tuesday People podcast, which was inspired by the lessons learned alongside Maury Schwartz when he was dying. 25 years ago now from ALS and many of those lessons were put together in the book Tuesdays with Maury and it reached an audience I never anticipated I have never stopped learning from those lessons and apparently many people around the world have not either and so we put together this podcast uh what is it now Lisa about eight months ago nine months ago
2: uh, November like or something or other at the beginning. Yeah. Time has started. changed. Time has changed in coronavirus
0: time. There's, there's, P, there's B, B, C, V, and uh, a c v. I guess, before coronavirus. Yeah, this,
2: is, this is B, C, V, yeah. November uh, 5th, like something that. like that. And that
0: voice, if you're new to our program, is my friend and producer of this program, Lisa Goich and we're trying to help people get through the current situation obviously with the coronavirus pandemic and the way that um, pretty much all the country is locked down in some shape or form and of course that can wreak havoc with your mental state and uh, i invited a gentleman who i have come to know just recently but have great respect for and my wife has followed his work for many many years and introduced me to him And I think he's a perfect guest to have to talk about how to deal with some of the mental stress of what's going on right now. His name is Daniel Amen, if you have not heard of him, a psychiatrist, the founder of the Amen Clinics, a 12-time New York Times bestseller. And he's got a new book called The End of Mental Illness, which is going to make him uh, continuous in that particular vein. He is a physician, a double board certified psychiatrist and the recipient of the John Maxwell Transformational Leadership Award for 2019. More importantly, he speaks plainly and understandably about the brain and what we do and don't understand about it and what we can do to help control it. And I'm so happy to welcome Daniel Amen, Dr. Daniel Amen, to the Tuesday People podcast. Hello, Doc. How are you doing? Hey, Mitch. Uh, So nice to talk
1: to both you and Lisa
0: Well, we're glad to have you with us, and I would imagine right off the bat that I don't know what type of hours you're keeping or or office hours or how you're doing it, but I have to imagine that ever since coronavirus and COVID-19 became part of our daily lives, you have been extraordinarily in demand, uh, not just by by media sources and things like that, but by your patients, am I right?
1: No question. Um, It's a very stressful time for so many people. Now, it's also a transformational time for a whole group of other people. And I had the stress myself of having my mom, my dad, and my sister come down with COVID-19. They were actually in the hospital Mm. together, my mom Mm. and dad. But thankfully, five days later, they went home. And so they're sort of our local coronavirus celebrities, (laughs) uh, 88 and 90, having beaten this. And now what I tell them, it's like, well, you can go shopping for us (laughs) because they likely have immunity from it. But so I know the stress of having parents go into the hospital, not being able to visit them, wonder if I'll ever see them again alive. And It's a very stressful time. And what... I tell my patients is mental hygiene is just as important as washing your hands. We have to disinfect our thoughts. Uh, I call it kill the ants, the automatic negative thoughts, so that they don't run over us and destroy us during this difficult time.
0: Yeah. Well, as you know, this podcast was inspired by Maury Schwartz, who Who uh, contracted ALS in his late 70s and had to himself find a a mental plane that he could exist on. ALS is a prolonged disease, and he didn't know how long he would have left, uh, but it wasn't going to be instant. It was going to be months or perhaps years. That's what it turned out to be several years. And he had to find a, a balance of dealing with a very harsh reality of a terminal illness that was robbing him slowly of every physical ability that he had come to know as a healthy human being, and yet still remaining alive. And I would imagine there are parallels between what he had to do and what we are having to do and will have to do, because this is also for many of us, certainly people over 60, certainly people who have hypertension, uh, people who have diabetes, people who are just concerned in general about maybe not having the greatest health. This is not a one-month or two-month window here. Uh, This is quite likely a year and a half to two years. So how can you uh, begin to give us some thoughts about You know, turning that ocean liner of your mind away from panic, uh, which is the first reaction to this, and finding that plane that we're going to have to live on for some months to come.
1: Well, and this is where mental hygiene and mental discipline is just so important. But one of the things uh, I think are critical, it's critical. It's at some level, you really do have to make peace with death. And when I was in college, I took a death and dying class. And it was so helpful to me because, you know, when you're young, you don't really think about it. But Elizabeth kugler ross is one of my favorite authors. She was a psychiatrist well-known for grief uh, work. And she said, it's the denial of death that is partially responsible for people living empty purposeful lives. Because when you live as if you live forever, it becomes too easy to postpone the things you know that you must do. So it's the death dragon, sort of like Godzilla, that's uh, pounding around the globe now with this pandemic. And, And I think too often, you know, if my dad had died, that I already know he's going to live on through me. And at some point, he's 90 years old, and at some point, probably in the not-too-distant future, he will die. Mm -hmm. Um, So coming to grips with that and knowing what that means for you is the first step in living a full and complete life.
0: Right. And that, of course, is true whether there's a coronavirus pandemic going on or not. Uh, It just becomes more immediate because you know it could happen to you or to your loved ones let me break down a few scenarios that i'm finding people in and and talk to us dr amen about how you would advise someone who is dealing with this particular mental stress uh the abject anxiety panic of getting this disease you know like even if i protect myself somebody might come in the house or I, I have to go out for groceries, uh, and, and, and I don't know who's breathing on me, and, uh, and, and, and I'm, I'm so worried that you know, I, I might have missed, I might have forgotten to wash my hands for, for one moment, and that's what's going to get, you know, that's sort of over the top, kind of as if, these, these, as if coronavirus is a, is a devil that's hanging around your doorstep and trying to get in underneath the door and trying to get in through your pillow and all all that. How do you deal with that kind of anxiety and fear of the disease itself?
1: So imagine the people who have obsessive compulsive disorder, who have germ phobias. Living now has just heightened their stress so much. Mm-hmm. And what I do, and, and let's also say that don't worry be happy people, well they actually die the earliest from accidents and preventable illnesses. So having a healthy level of anxiety is critical to surviving. In a pandemic, but too much damages your immune system, making it more likely that the virus will damage you. And mm. so, doing what you can do, but also at the same time, having a stress management practice, which for me involves whenever you feel sad or mad or nervous or out of control. Start writing down what you're thinking and asking yourself whether or not it's true, if you can absolutely know that it's true, and then do the things you know you should do, but also know if you worry too much, that's bad as well.
0: Good start on uh, exactly what people have to deal with here. Lisa?
2: Yeah, that's interesting because I have clinically diagnosed OCD, have since I was a little kid. And... um, crazy enough this i felt very prepared for this in a way you know um i certainly <laughs> You've been thinking have already about had this mass. coming
0: your whole life haven't oh, you?
2: i've been i've been i've been waiting for this you just had to life.
0: clean a little bit more that's all <laughs> an extra so, mopping
2: yeah i kind of feel like i'm the teacher in my house and everywhere else saying well this is how you should do this now you know like like i, I feel a sense of calm is that normal I don't know.
1: That's such an interesting observation. I've been on the radio in London every Thursday night, uh, just answering calls from callers. And I had someone who had schizophrenia, another person who had autism. And they say, during this time, it's incredible how peaceful I feel. Because now the whole world knows the stress I've been under for many years. So <laughs>
0: That's what I'm talking about. We're all crazy that now. That is
1: really ah. interesting. Um, but if you're worried about germs, then over time you actually develop rituals to keep mm-hmm. them away. Now, the problem is, is if you don't let your kids play in the dirt, they don't actually develop a healthy immune system because... Um, our microbiome, that's the hundred trillion bugs in our gut, uh, they need variety. It's just in the middle of a pandemic, being a really good cleaner is very important.
0: Hmm. All right. So that's probably the, the most prominent one. Second, uh, how are you dealing with and what are you advising people who now, after a solid month in many states, have been locked indoors they are stuck into a routine that's the antithesis of what they were used to doing they're seeing maybe the same person or the same people or they're seeing nobody uh, they're by themselves and cabin fever we passed a long time ago cabin fever is after a week uh, it's 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 uh, I don't know what it's called now but uh, I'm sure there's some version of it and uh, what do you recommend and, and what maybe Sort of exercises like that, you know, writing down uh, one that you offered just before, can people do to deal with this sense of enclosure that we're all having to deal with? Well, yes, it is
1: loneliness for certain and boredom. That's what I'm finding. And you're a writer, and I'm a writer. And I'm like, give me three months alone where I don't have to do anything else. I am going to get something accomplished. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really cherish the time. So get a project going, something you wanted to learn, something you wanted to do, um, and a routine that serves your health rather than hurts your health. Too often, I mean, online alcohol sales have skyrocketed. That's not going to be the prescription for getting through this without being damaged or damaging someone else. Um, Get routines that you love. And in the end of mental illness, my new book, I talk about tiny habits. Smallest thing I can do today that will make the biggest difference. And so the mother habit is whenever you come to a point in your day, just ask yourself, Is this choice good for my brain or bad for it? And if you choose good, you're more likely during this pandemic to get healthy rather than so many people are going to get worse. They're going to get sick. So um, protecting yourself with routine that is healthy, I think, will be really great. And on a routine basis, reach out to your friends because they're feeling lonely as well. I noticed that advertisements for the great courses and it's like, what a great idea. It's like, well, I've always wanted to learn about this. I've never had the time. Discipline yourself to just spend half an hour, an hour a day learning something new. That is actually an incredible brain healthy exercise that will work your brain. And then I have this exercise I love. And I did this on the radio last night. And three minutes just transformed this woman's life. She had COPD and she had throat cancer and you could just hear it, but she couldn't breathe. And she's like, I want to go outside. I'm desperate to go outside. And I'm like, you've got all the risk factors. You go outside, that's likely to take you out. And I said, but what I want you to do is this. I want you to write down 12 of the best memories of your life. And then, as you walk around your house, I want you to associate each memory with some place in your house. So, for example, with me, when I walk in the kitchen, I see my grandfather, who I'm named after, who was my best friend growing up, who was a candy maker. And I see him at the stove making fudge. Now, I've turned it into healthy fudge, but I'm four years old and we're doing it together. So every time I walk in the kitchen, it triggers a Mm. great memory. And with the memory comes those chemicals in my brain that make me feel good. And if you can do that with just 12 memories, wherever you go in your house, you're soothed. By this strategy in your mind,
0: and if you don't have twelve rooms in your house, you know count the bathrooms or the hallways. Uh, that's a great, great, great advice. I'm also wondering as I'm hearing you talk about you know people who have some some mental uh, issues to begin with, depression, anxiety. I'm wondering how this time is playing out for people who have addictive personalities, who fight addictions because you got all this time alone. It's depressing, you know, you start to think negative thoughts, you're inside your house, whether it be drugs, whether it be alcohol, whether it be food, you know, if you can get it available, as you say, online sales of alcohol, what else is there to do for many people uh, but that? Are you finding that those that you have helped with addictions are are fighting off the temptations even more during COVID-19?
1: Yes, it's much harder because they don't have another way to manage stress that they're good at and this has been the way they medicate the bad thoughts um, it, it's much worse and suicide and suicidal behavior is going up and mm. it's been horrifying uh, us at the clinics uh, to hear about the hopelessness uh, that people feel
0: right. and well-
1: Most people don't know this, but April is the highest month for suicide in general. Hmm, That people often have been depressed through the winter, but they didn't have the energy to act on their um, dark impulses. And now they have the energy before they actually get better. And so it's the highest month for suicide. A lot of people think it's December, but December is actually the lowest month for suicide having to deal with your family have often felt homicidal, but generally not
0: suicidal. (laughs) I'll go look at those statistics. Uh, Homicides are up, suicides down. Uh, That leads me to the last uh, point that I was going to ask. I guess you've touched on a bit with regard to COVID-19, and that is the future— we keep reading these stories now there will be no normal anymore the new normal that's coming the way there won't be handshakes anymore there won't be hugs anymore uh people at the, when they return to their offices are going to be 6 feet apart uh everyone's going to be wearing masks wherever you go it 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 portends for a very ominous kind of future and and not just for a couple months but for several years at least so for those who obsess about the future and, and always have to have something to look forward to, what is your advice for those who are getting depressed about the fact that even when we get the doors open from these various lockdowns, there's not going to be the things to look forward to that there used to be? The world is going to change for the, for the diminished and not the enhanced.
1: Yes, uh, it's true, but it's also true it will end. And so, keeping yourself healthy and smart during this transition time. Now, I know you have signed a gazillion books over the years, and I've done a lot of book signings. And, you know, I wash my hands, and then I come to sign books, and then everybody wants to touch me. And I don't really like it. Uh, And I didn't like it before just because, you know, I'm a doctor and I know about all the germs that I really didn't want near me and so i think some of it's okay for us to really be thinking uh about hygiene uh i think some of that's okay but i was in the army um twice once as an enlisted soldier and then once as an army doctor and i can do two years in an isolated place if i get my mind right and if we get our minds right and realize. By not shaking hands, by doing the social distancing, I'm protecting my mom and dad or I'm protecting your mom and dad. If we get our minds right, then it's going to be okay. I mean, I'm a crazy Los Angeles Lakers fan and the Lakers were having a great season and I'm sort of bummed that it got changed. Right. But I'm way happier my mom and dad survived this thing. Yeah. I mean, that we really have to order our values and what's truly important, and that's protecting us, protecting our families, and then protecting the families of the people we serve.
0: I'm going to ask you one uh, last one on this that's somewhat more personal for me, but I imagine I can extrapolate it also to people who are older. I find, Dr. Amon, that... Um, what saddens me the most, just personally, not obviously the way our country is suffering and the world is suffering and the people in my community are suffering and the charitable things that we're doing and all that, that's all to the side. But when I have my moments just thinking about me, I find that I say, you know, I don't have that many years left. And I'm now going to give away a year, a year and a half, maybe two years of, you know, me and you know, I have an orphanage in Haiti. And I'm there every month, have been for 10 years without fail. And now, for the first time, I've had to miss a month and, and another month and another. Who knows how long this is going to go? And I, I find myself, then I started thinking about, well, what about, you know, uh, Tony Bennett uh, was a friend of mine. I've known him over the years. And I think he's, he's still out there at 90. Uh, there are guys who are still trying to do what they're doing in their 80s. And, and then all of a sudden, this comes and you're not gonna be able to do it, and you look at it relative to the time that you have left, and you start saying, yeah, you know, I didn't have time to spare here, and now I'm gonna have to surrender life as I know it. For me, it's going down to Haiti and being with the kids. For, For Tony Bennett, it might be performing. For other people, it might be something else. And, you know, I'm trying to fight this feeling of unfairness. Like, you know, if I was 20, I wouldn't mind changing my life for two more years. But, and as you said, you can do two years in isolation, but I think you're close to my age, and, 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 you know, I I find I can't stop thinking about, you know, gee, I, I, I had plans, you know, to do more with this time to make the most of it, not to have to give it back. Is there any piece of advice for people who are thinking like that?
1: So if you're in my office, I go to my board, and I'd write, it's not fair. And then I would walk you through an exercise of these five questions. So is it true, is the first question. And you might say, yes, it's not fair. And then I would ask, and I love this question, is it absolutely true, with a 100% certainty, it's not fair? And probably not. When you think of babies that have brain tumors, or, well, you see it in the orphanage okay. all the time, finding Chica was just such a great but heartbreaking story and what happened to her clearly wasn't fair Um, and then the third question is well how do you feel when you believe it's not fair you feel sad and you feel withdrawn and you feel mad Um, it's that thought that drives unhappiness um, and maybe even some bitterness the fourth question is great well, how would you feel if you didn't have this thought? If you couldn't have the thought, well, you'd feel like your normal, motivated self. And you'd be FaceTiming with all the little ones in the orphanage and still using your resources and your creative energy to serve them and actually get more bonded to them. And you're also going to save those two years where you're not on plane not two years, but, you know, six months or whatever, where you're not on planes, where you're resting your body, where you're really working on your health so that you don't have just a couple of more years, you actually have more decades. And then the last question, the fifth question is, let's take it's not fair and just flip it to the opposite. It is fair. And then just ask yourself, is there any evidence where, in fact, this is fair. And I love this piece that C.S. Lewis wrote in was actually 1948. Um, and it, it's just so beautiful. And he was writing about the atomic bomb, and you just replace the atomic bomb with COVID-19, he, he writes in one way, we think a great to deal too much about COVID-19. How are we to live? And he says, "Why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed, as you're already living in an age of cancer, syphilis, paralysis, air raids, railway accidents, and motorcycle accidents. So in other words, uh, don't let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of the situation. (laughs) I love, he says, it's Mm. perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death in a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. Mm. If we are going to be destroyed by the virus, let the virus, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening, bathing children, playing tennis. The virus may break our body, but it need not dominate our
0: minds. Hmm. I just love that. So you're substituting the word virus Hmm. for the atomic bomb, and it makes perfect sense. Where did C.S. Lewis write that, if our listeners want to find Hmm. that?
1: So um, it was in 1948, and it was an essay on the atomic bomb. Okay.
0: Okay. Well, mm-hmm. it'd be helpful to get something like that and just scratch out atomic bomb and and and, and write in virus. Yeah, Lisa.
2: Yeah, and I think that that really makes uh, makes so much sense. And just what you said in the midst of all that, um, when you were talking about somebody like Mitch, who's travels a lot and goes a lot of places. I look at Mitch right now and I say, this is good for you, Mitch album. (laughs) I, I know it might make you uncomfortable, but, uh, you know, sometimes people need to slow down a little bit and which leads me to my next question. Um, when this all started and we, we're told I I have a day job and I, you know, we, we all had to work from home. And when it first started, I thought, wow, this is this, I feel this sense of calm and peace. And I too live in Los Angeles and the traffic is horrible. And it was, it's so lovely to just be able to sit home and not have to drive every day, you know? Um, And as you were talking earlier, you were talking about use this time to do things and learn things and take classes. I had posted something about that online and I got, blowback by a couple of people calling me one privileged for having those thoughts and two I, I felt very guilty because they brought up there are people out there suffering how can you talk about using this time to be enriching yourself and to be whatever cleaning your closets whatever you want to do when there are people out there suffering and that's who I should be thinking about and so then I started feel guilty and I no longer share those thoughts anymore so how do you get over not feeling guilty about having this, what I think is unbelievably peaceful time?
1: Well, there are always trolls. <laughs> there are <they're Right>. always <laughs> people who are going to criticize you. And so one, I, I don't read those kind of comments. And mm-hmm. two, what people don't understand is this is a historic time for families to bond. That this is historic and that the last three generations of families have been two-parent working families where they're not resting and they're not right. bonding with their children because they're in traffic, they're working, they're trying to pay their mortgages, and um, the incidence of mental health problems in children has more than doubled since 1990.
0: and wow. Now...
1: We get to spend time. If you go, so what's the best thing about the pandemic? So I have a 16-year-old, and I just we just adopted our nieces, 10 and 15. And the 15 and 16-year-old, they wanted nothing to do with us. They were gone. You know, it's school, it's work, it's friends, it's anything but us. And my wife, actually, more than me, she was mourning the loss of our daughter, and now they're home. And for the first week, they were like really bristling against the stay-at-home order. But then hmm. something shifted. And we have these long dinners together. We are playing table tennis together. And this is so important. And what I deal with my patients, because a lot of times my patients are home and they're fighting with each other. It's like this is an opportunity to you, for you to fix your relationship with your son. This is an opportunity uh, to just step back and go, but well, what do I really want? And, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's two months or two years, if you're smart, you're going to take that time and guilt because other people are struggling. Well, what are you going to do? You can't go outside and help them. Yeah. You can pray right. for them, you can donate, and you can do the things you can do but recriminating yourself for being normal is not helpful.
2: Right n- what nor you want nor to do is, is going helpful
0: nor is going on the internet and criticizing somebody else, which is also a colossal <laughs> waste of time and not very yeah. sensitive to the people who were suffering either you, you know i i I'm, I'm I'm with dr. Amen. I don't read those kind of comments, but my response, Lisa, if I had, would have been, and the time it took you to write me this note, how much sympathy were you showing to other people versus the <laughs> right. anger that you were showing to me right so i mean it's all it's it's a line we all walk between. Living good lives for ourselves and and being blessed and appreciating our blessings, and knowing that at any moment of any day someone is suffering, maybe not even that far from us uh, and 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 we need to be mindful of that and do what we can for it uh, but you know I, I agree not everyone is born into uh, mother Teresa's shoes and spends every every waking moment. Dealing with the 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 poorest and the most suffering, and and it, it's it's a lot to ask of people simply to find a good balance in their life, and this time yeah. in particular. Dr. Amen has written a book, uh, the newest book, called "The End of Mental Illness." And um, well, I remember when when I first met you, I think this book was still not out yet, but I thought, wow, what a great title! Because if if there's really If that could be true, uh, the world would be a much different place. Uh, You talk in the book about mental illness, just that phrase, that guy has a mental illness, he's suffering from mental illness, she's having, you you know, she has mental problems, things like that. That in and of itself starts to cause a problem, correct? It's shaming.
1: It's stigmatizing. Forty years ago, when I told my dad I wanted to be a psychiatrist, he asked me why I didn't want to be a real doctor why I wanted to be a nut doctor and hang out with nuts all day long. And my dad's not a dumb guy. Um, You know, he was chairman of the board of a $4 billion company. Um, But it just has that shame attached to it where nobody really wants to see a psychiatrist. No one wants to be labeled as defective or abnormal. But everybody wants a better brain. So what if mental health was brain health, and that one idea just begins to change everything, because everybody wants. It's like, yes, I want a better brain. Help me have a better brain, and oh, by the way, your depression's less, and your anxiety's less, and your memory's better, and your focus is better, and you relate better to other people. Um, we need to end the term mental illness because it's wrong. These are not mental problems, they're brain health issues that steal your mind. And if we're gonna end mental illness, the end of mental illness begins with a revolution in brain health. So you can go to most psychiatric hospitals today and they'll give you medication, but they'll also feed you like crap. And it's like, nah, does that make sense? The brain is an organ just like your heart is an organ, But did you know that most people who see cardiologists have never had a heart attack? They're there to prevent them. So I see a day and talk about it in the end of mental illness where you're gonna go see a psychiatrist and he's gonna get your brain better to prevent depression, to prevent Alzheimer's disease, to prevent anxiety disorders. And how we do that is we go after each of the risk factors. Like we know the risk factors for heart disease we also know the risk factors for things like um, depression.
0: Well, you uh, one of the things you talk about, and I've gotten to know a little bit by uh, getting to know you and, and, and being a patient of yours, is identifying your brain type. I think most people just think we have this big glob of goo up there, and unless it gets a tumor, uh, it's pretty much the same for everybody. And uh, maybe some people use more of it than others, and they're smarter than others. But other than that, it's just this big gray glob up there and, and, uh, and there's not much distinction to it. And I had my eyes open greatly when uh, we came out there and, and uh, you perform uh, what's called a spec scan on brains. I don't want to get too technical with our audience, but uh, you actually talk about that there are different brain types. Can you explain to our audience in, in layman's terms what that actually means?
1: So when I first started our imaging work, so we do a study called Brain SPECT Imaging, and spec looks at blood flow and activity, looks at how your brain works. And I was so excited about it. Because as a psychiatrist, you know, most psychiatrists never look at the organ. They treat, which is a little bit insane. And I'm like, oh, what's the pattern for depression? Or what's the pattern for ADD? And pretty soon I found depression had a whole bunch of different patterns. It wasn't one thing. Giving someone the diagnosis of depression is sort of like giving them the diagnosis of chest pain. Nobody gets a diagnosis of chest pain because it doesn't tell you what's causing it or what to do about it. And so I'd actually written books on seven types of ADD, seven types of anxiety and depression, and six types of addicts, and five types of overeaters. And then I realized, well, we all have a type. Are we balanced? Uh, And the balanced people are managing the pandemic pretty well. Um, Are you spontaneous? Those are the people more likely to end up on South Beach in the middle of a pandemic. They're just the don't worry, be happy people. (laughs) Then they're the persistent type where my wife, um, she was prepared for the pandemic, even though I'd made fun of her for like 10 years. I'm like, why do you have all that stuff? She said, bad <laughs> things could happen. So she was ready for <laughs> it. <laughs> and, uh, Your wife and my wife. wife. Is yeah. It is I love her. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the I told you so's, I'm just, there's nothing for me to say. There's just not one thing yeah. to say. Yeah. <laughs> Um, And then there's the sensitive type. They can be a little bit of the glasses half empty, um, but they make really great therapists. And then there's the cautious type. These are people, they're 10 minutes early for appointments, and they're an hour early for the airport, and they see what's wrong, which protects them, but it also causes them to suffer. So I talk about, so what's your type? And what are the strategies to help you um, be the best you can be?
0: Well, these and, and other topics are covered in The End of Mental Illness, which is a wonderful book, as are uh, so many other books that Dr. Amen has written, Change Your Brain, Change Your Life, Healing ADD, Memory Rescue, and more. Uh, if uh, We've just given you a brief glimpse into his understanding of the world of psychiatry and, and treating it from where the brain begins, which I think is brilliant. And you're absolutely right. You know, how many psychiatrists you meet never talk about where all these things are coming from, the actual organ. You don't even get to look at your brain, and and, uh, it's not even brought into the diagnosis. So I think that uh, now's a good time to be reading up on things, and uh, this would be a good time to uh, read up on this particular one, uh, particularly if you're suffering from some depression or anxiety or other issues that are going on with COVID-19. In closing, is there a general piece of advice that you can share with our listeners having, now this is less you as the doctor and more you as the son of two parents who, as you said, your dad's 90, you wanna talk about high risk. Uh, When you were looking at the numbers coming in from Italy And basically, it felt like everybody who was over 75 or 80 who got it in Italy died and died quickly. And you have parents who are beyond that age. Uh, What did you learn from that uh, that you can share with our audience in terms of, uh, you know, perhaps if they find themselves in a similar situation or they're afraid of finding themselves in a similar situation?
1: You know, I think for me, being blessed to teach mental hygiene It helped me so much because there were nights I went to bed just knowing um, I could get a phone call saying that they were gone. And right away, I wrote down, my dad's going to die. And then I went, well, is that true? It's like, I don't know. And then if you actually look at the statistics, they're not what you think they are. That for people their age, it's between... 10% 10% and 27% that they'll die. That means there's a 90 to 73% chance, and you understand odds, that they're actually going to beat it at their age. Now, if you or I got it, we had a 1% chance we would die. So that's 10 times us, but it still means 90%. He's probably going to be okay. And so by managing my mind with truth, it just helps me so much. Plus, in dealing with the death dragon that we talked about, I've already come to terms with at some point I'm going to lose him, which means that's why I call him every day. Mm -hmm. And that's why I try to stay present with what I have and know still that when I lose him, I believe I'll see him again. And he will always live in me. And and he and I had a conflicted relationship. I mean, just the example of, you know, why don't you want to be a real doctor? He never got, you know, father of the year award. But about five years ago when he was sick, he developed heart failure. And he never listened to me. I'm like, Actually, really well-known physician and psychiatrist. He never listened to me until he needed me. And then he did everything I asked him to do, and it just changed his health. And probably is the reason he was able to survive. Hmm.
0: Well, uh, Dr. Amen, I can't thank you enough for spending this time with us on the Tuesday People podcast. It's been really enlightening and extremely timely, I think. And just as I had great admiration for Maury... Uh, how he was able to find the mental balance dealing with that terrible disease for for two years and to keep perspective on life. So much of what he said, which was intuitive to him as a sociologist, not so much about his brain, but about how he interacted with people, uh, I'm hearing reflected a little more medically, perhaps, uh, less philosophically, but still the result is the same through your words. And I want to thank you for sharing them with us and I hope they are of comfort to people who are listening to our podcast, amenclinics.com, by the way, is the link if you want to find out more about Dr. Daniel Amon and his practice, uh, and he's got uh, offices there in California, but also other places around the country. And The End of Mental Illness is his latest book. Thank you. Stay safe, Dr. Amen. Uh, look forward to seeing Thank you in you. person whenever they allow us to see people in person, <laughs> however well, old we'll be.
1: Manage. Thanks, Thank you so much. I'm just a huge fan of your work. And when I knew we were going to get to meet, I was just like a little kid. Uh, (laughs) I'm just grateful to know you.
0: Well, not as much of a little kid as my wife was, who basically was bouncing on the airplane uh, when she knew that she was going to get a chance to meet you. I, you. know, We used to have a thing where where I said it, it, she loved Sting, you know, from the police. And, and and I said, you know, if you ever meet Sting and he says to you, you know, you're the most amazing woman I've ever seen. I, I've got to spend time with you. I said, you're, you're free to go if you want to. But I, I think she was actually more excited about meeting you than Sting uh so you've 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 leapfrogged a rock star and that's uh (laughs) that's a good thing to have on your resume that's going to uh, do it for today's edition of the Tuesday People podcast Uh, we will be back next Tuesday with another edition by the way if you've been uh, following some of the news about my latest work of fiction you're probably aware that I'm giving it away for free that's not usual for authors, but uh, I'm doing it this time. Uh, I'm writing something in real time called Human Touch. It's a fictional story about a small town and a corner in a small town where there are four families living on four different corners and how they interact with one another during this pandemic and how their dynamic changes and what gets good, what gets bad, etc. And the reason I'm giving this away for free is, one, because I'd like to provide a diversion for people during these tough times, And two, I want to raise money for my hometown here in Detroit uh, to fight COVID-19, and one of my foundations, Say Detroit, has an effort called uh, Detroit Beats COVID-19, where all the money we're raising goes directly to six or seven specific projects that involve making masks for first responders, uh, taking care of seniors who are homebound and making sure that they're fed, uh, running a quarantine center uh, for homeless citizens, and uh, most significantly, Uh, opening an inner-city testing center through our medical clinic in downtown Detroit, which we're on the lip of doing, and it's an expensive proposition, but it can change the way literally people live uh, in in a city that's, by statistics, about as hard-hit as any city in America. So if you enjoy what you read and then you're inclined to make a donation at the end, we welcome the donations. It's not a prerequisite. You can read it even without. So if you've enjoyed my books, you get to read one for free on the web Uh, all you have to do is go to humantouchstory.com, humantouchstory.com, or you can find it at mitchalbum.com, or just type it in, and you'll figure it out. We're up to Chapter 2 right now of what will be, I think, eight weeks. And don't ask me how it ends, because I don't even know what's coming next week. (laughs) I'm writing it and literally turning it in, and there it goes. So it's an interesting experiment. Until we see you next time, uh, on behalf of Lisa Goich, this is Mitch Album saying, stay safe, and we'll see you next Tuesday.
2: Thank you for listening to Tuesday People. To be part of our conversation, join the Tuesday People community at wetuesdaypeople.com. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode and share it with your friends. We look forward to having you with us every Tuesday because, after all, we're Tuesday People.